You may be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, thank you for those that have gone before us that followed you anywhere, even to death. There's stories we keep talking about, we keep telling them. But for those of us that are still living and striving to follow you, we just want to know how to do that better and better. We want to be firm in our convictions, sure of the gospel, sure of its demands, sure of its forgiveness. And so would you, would you stir up our convictions, stir up our passions for the gospel? Would, we, would you make us people like your son, people full of grace and full of truth. We don't always get that right. Lord, sometimes we get further onto the truth and we hurt people because we get mean and defensive. And sometimes we get too gracious and we, we compromise because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Would you help us get the balance right the way your son did? Knowing that it won't make everyone happy, but that... At the end of the day, if we have the applause of heaven, that's all we need. Help us now. Uh, would, you, would you give your spirit to us in a fuller sense? Would you fill us up right now so that we can understand a uh, difficult topic and one that truly our country and our world is struggling with? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's try something different this morning. Uh, if, as I preach, if you have a question you'd like to see answered in the service or maybe even afterwards during cross-training, we'll discuss the sermon at 1045 right here, as we always do. Uh, but if you have a question you'd like to see answered, I'm not going to promise I'll answer it in the sermon, but I might. Uh, I'll, I'll invite you to text it to my phone. I'll keep my phone on, and I'll even let you put your phone on Okay, and uh, and text me. So now, now if you're on your phone playing video games, you can t- ah, texting the pastor. No, um, but please text me. Now you need my number. It's on the back of the bulletin. Okay, I'm on the back of the bulletin. That's my cell phone. Text me. I have my cell phone vibrate, so I won't ding every time you hear one coming in. Like who did that? Who did that? You know, I once had a friend who uh, actually he would bring his cell phone to service. And he would try to figure out who had their cell phones on so he would send them a message or call them during the service and then see who rung, you know. Not good, not good. But he had a good time. So please text me if you'd like to see a question answered either. And I'm not going to promise I'll answer it, but I may answer it either in this service or in cross-training depending on what time does here, okay? Okay, uh, this topic is one that I, I, as I've prayed and as I've said, I know it's divisive. I know in many ways this kind of thing could paint a target on us or on the church or on me or whatever. I, I get that. People get labeled as hateful all the time for talking about this. And yet, 
I, rem- I distinctly remember about four or five years ago, I'm sitting in a group of pastors from central Wisconsin, senior pastors, and someone in that room says, when was the last time you preached on homosexuality? This is four or five years ago. And the guys are looking at each other, and I'm kind of waiting for them to answer. I don't want to be like the rude youth pastor and say, well, I talked about it last week, you know. Because we did talk about it in the youth ministry uh, fairly often. I'm not saying like every week sort of thing, but fairly often meaning once or twice a year we're probably going to touch on that. Because this is where students are at. But in that room with those guys, I heard them say, not in a long time. Not in a long time. And part of that discussion was we we ought to talk about this more because this is what people are thinking about. This is what they're dealing with. You may have a family member. You may have a friend, a loved one that's dealing with this issue. Where do you go with it? What is the church saying about it? Because if we say nothing, when the time comes for us to answer somebody, do you have an answer? Do you have something to say? Can you be full of grace and truth in that moment. So, here's the dangerous way we're tackling this topic. <laughs> this week, I'm, I'm, I'm really doing what does the Bible say on homosexuality. Let's survey the Bible. Next week, I'm doing how does the church, how do people, how do parents, how do kids respond to this issue? Well, what should our response be? Today is, let's understand what God has said about the issue. Next week is, what do we do about it? Now, there's a big danger there because I've been praying about grace and truth, right? Let's be full of grace and full of truth. Today's going to be heavier on truth, but I want to preach it in a gracious way. Next week will be really heavy on grace and how do we, how do we handle this as a church, but there'll be truth in there too. So, I've got to get that balance right. Today's survey, next week is response. Okay? Just to so see you know where we're going with this. I could try to do it all in one sermon. We'd be here for a few hours and it, we'll just do it in two weeks. <clears throat> so, in 2011, Wheaton College had a chapel service where, they, where the topic was homosexuality and the speaker said what the speaker said and, and there were students and alumni who deemed that talk uh, inappropriate because it was too narrow, it was too judgmental, because it only told one side of the story. It wasn't inclusive of different views. And out of that was born this group of Wheaton alumni called One Wheaton. Now, I'm not picking on Wheaton College because as far as I know, they still have a very firm stance on the issue, a biblical stance on it. And yet, the, if, if you go to the One Wheaton website, you have this long list of people, alumni, students, that, that, that are saying, we're standing together saying we think we think we believe the bible is saying this is an issue that the church has gotten wrong for hundreds of years and that we need to be pro gay marriage we need to say this is this is an okay practice for our culture <clears throat> maybe you were in tune with the news a couple weeks ago when uh, the mayor of Houston a lesbian tried to subpoena five pastors to get sermons and literature that they've, they've put out there on this issue. Send us what you've talked about. We're requesting that information. And there was a big pushback against that, and that subpoena has been dropped, I believe, in the meantime. <clears throat> but increasingly, this is an issue that we're dealing with as a culture. I don't think we're doing well with it. 
Uh, I'll, I'll give one more example. Uh, Pastor Louis Giglio, the, the, the guy that started the Passion Movement, he does conferences that impact thousands of Christians every year. Uh, you might have heard him talk about, he has a, he has a, a, a session called Indescribable where he talks about the God who created the universe and he talks about how far we are from other planets and how big the universe is and brings it back to how amazing God is. Maybe you've seen that talk. It's Louis Giglio. Amazing. You should YouTube it at least if you haven't seen it. It'll just blow your mind the things that he says about science and about the Bible. Uh, he was invited to pray at President Obama's inauguration. Qu- quite an honor. And then somebody along the line looked up and found that he had preached something on homosexuality at some point in, in, it sounds like years back, he had said something, and they pulled that message out and said, you can't have this guy praying at the inauguration. And so they disinvited him, and his name went out there as a hateful, bigoted person. And he said the day after that was a hard day for him when he got all of this feedback about how hateful he is as a person. If if you've heard Louis talk, he's not much of a hateful person. He's a pretty exciting, exuberant, loving kind of guy. He's an awesome guy. So, if it's not what you're seeing on TV, it's not what you're hearing in the church, it's, if it, it, it really is all around us. And what we see the church doing today, and I'm not going to call out denominations, you could do a quick Google search and find out which denominations are, are remaining neutral on the issue. Some in the Northwoods area that are saying, we're not going to say for or against, we're going to stay neutral. You've got some that are saying, no, we're going to be welcoming, we're going to be open, not just welcoming, but we are going to actually give our okay to this behavior. I mean, that's the, kind, that's the church that we're in today. That, that's, that, that's, that's our church culture in America. What do we do? What do we say? Whatever we do and whatever we say, I believe 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 has to apply. That all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Whatever we do, we have to say that the bottom line issue is what does God say? What does the Bible say? By the way, I know that uh, the Catholic Church is also talking about this issue but there is a difference between the Catholic Church and the Evangelical Church, and it really does come down to 1 Timothy 3:16 and 17. Because if you want to know one of the big differences between the Catholic Church and the Evangelical Church, yes, there's differences in the communion or the Eucharist. There's differences there and in baptism. But one of the major differences, what you can trace this back to, is who has authority? Does the church give authority to the Bible, or does the Bible give authority to the church? Who has ultimate authority? Evangelicals say, especially since the Reformation, all authority is in the Word of God. That's where the authority comes from. So if the church says A and the Bible says B, then the church is wrong. Catholic Church is, it's what we have passed down to you as the church. It's the authority of the leaders of the church, the Pope. The Pope speaks for Peter. He's in the line of Peter. The keys of the kingdom have been given to him, right? He has authority. And so what they say goes. So yeah, a Catholic person will open the Bible and say, here's what the Bible says, but ultimately first allegiance is to what the church says. There's a difference here. And so all I'm saying is, as a church, as a Christian, we're saying, authorities in the Bible, what does the Bible say? 
Just tell us what the Bible says. Help us understand it, Spirit of God, and then we can do it. So what I want to do this morning is do a survey of the Old Testament and the New Testament on this issue. In fact, my outline for this morning is actually the Gospel. Okay? What a novel idea. We're going to start in the Garden of Eden. We're going to look at the fall. Then we're going to look at uh, Israel and what God was doing there. Then we're going to look at redemption in Christ, transformation in Christ, and then we'll end in glory. Heaven. Okay? That's all we're doing is, is looking through the Bible, seeing the Gospel in it, as it relates to this issue today. Okay? So, uh, you should have a green handout. I highly recommend it. I've tried to give you all of my notes instead of some of my notes because I know for some of you, this is something you need to look at later, For probably for all of you. You need to look at this later and say, um, I'm going to have a conversation at Thanksgiving. I know it's coming. Christmas is coming. I know I'm going to sit down with those people. And I love them. And, and here... Here's some biblical things that could be discussed, okay? So part one. Part one in your notes is creation. If you're taking notes, I've tried to leave the blanks at a minimum, but part one, I'm just telling the gospel story here. It's creation. It's creation. Uh, You won't have to flip around in your Bibles until we get to Romans 1. That's a lengthier section. Uh, These you will see on the screen, my phone's not buzzing, so I guess we don't have any questions yet. That's good. Okay, I'm just kidding. I do hope you text with questions. Uh, I really do. Part one, creation. Um, A, we're on letter A. We say, God's purpose for marriage from the beginning has been a man and a woman becoming one flesh. Look at Genesis chapter 2 on the screen behind me. It says, Then the Lord God, Yahweh God, made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the creation story. This is the Garden of Eden. My, my goal is not to open the door of where does science fit with a seven-day creation. I'm not going. That's a topic for a different time, different day. But you've got this story that declares God's purpose. It's God speaking here saying, this is the reason a man will leave his father and mother, be, and, and a man and woman will be united together and become one flesh. And so in some ways, I think the marriage debate today can be easily resolved saying, this is what God's intention was. From the beginning, this is what God did. He put a man and a woman together. In fact, he had the man naming the animals one by one, and he was realizing that there's no helper here for me. There's no one like me here that can be my mate in life. I'm naming animals. And so then God says, I'm going to make someone suitable for Adam. And it's not going to be someone, it's going to be someone just like him but different. You know what I mean? Human but different. And we laugh all the time about the difference between men and women. You know, we laugh all the time about that because they're both human beings, but they're different. And they complement one another well. Hopefully, most of the time, right? (laughs) Hopefully. And so he makes a woman to complement the man. Now, uh, there's a challenge here, and I've given you some challenges in your notes. And what I've tried to do here is I've read a lot, a lot 
of pro-homosexual literature over the last week, in fact, over the last months and years. I've read a lot on the other side. I've read the books, I've read the articles, I've seen it, I've thought about it. I'm trying to capture some of the best arguments I've seen for homosexuality and then give an answer to them. Okay, So you have the challenges right there in your notes and you have an answer in your notes as well. So here's a challenge. The Bible, including Jesus, uh, exclamation point, never actually forbids monogamous homosexual unions. The Bible's actually silent on the issue. Now this statement is made in a lot of different ways. One way it's made is, you know, people didn't think about that back then. They didn't, they didn't think about marrying someone like This is a new issue for us, new for the church. The Bible doesn't address this issue exactly. In fact, Jesus did a lot of crazy things that, that ruffled people's feathers. He said a lot of things that made people mad, but he never talked about this issue. And if, if people were doing this back then in the first century, by the way, they were, it's not that this behavior was unknown in Jesus' day. Why wouldn't he address it? Our answer. God's purpose for marriage in Genesis 2 is the standard by which all marriages must conform. We would say Jesus didn't talk about this because the Bible was already clear about it. And there was no need for a further statement from Jesus on it. Now, let me take you to Matthew 19. You'll see on the screen here. Matthew 19 is about divorce. Okay? Some fair, again, another divisive issue in the church. Some Pharisees came to test him and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two. Therefore, where God is joined together, let no man separate. Now, Jesus goes on in this passage to address divorce directly. Okay, I mean, He does address the question directly in a few verses. We don't need to look at them because we're not talking about divorce this morning. But, when the Pharisees come to him, they want to know, how restrictive are you on the law of Moses and divorce? Because Moses permitted divorce in the Old Testament law. Under what circumstances should you be able to get divorced? And they, were, they would argue back and forth, and, and, the more, and the more loose ones would say any and every reason, and the more strict ones would say, no, it's got to be something immoral, sexual immorality. It'd be like that. That would be the reason. Where do you stand, Jesus, on this? They're trying to trip him up. Interesting that Jesus doesn't talk about divorce in the first part of his answer. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you my view on divorce, X, Y, and Z. What he does instead is he says, haven't you read Genesis? Haven't you seen the beginning and seen God's design for marriage? God created them what? Male and female. That's the way God made them so that this male and this female could become one flesh. That's the way God made them. So if you want to understand divorce, you've got to understand Genesis 1-3. through That's what he's saying. If you want to know what God thinks about divorce, look at the Garden of Eden and you'll figure it out. Now, like I said, he does answer the divorce question in a couple of verses. But that's where he starts. That's the bedrock. That's the foundation from which Jesus talks. 
So, when can we get divorced? Well, let me take you back to Genesis and take a look at that. No, Adam and Eve didn't get divorced. I don't care. I want you to see what God says about marriage in Genesis. And I think the same thing applies here. If you want to say, no, the Bible doesn't address gay marriage, I say, oh, no, no, no. It does address it because we already see God's purpose for marriage. And if Jesus talked about divorce by going back to Genesis first, we talk about homosexuality by going back to Genesis first. You see the parallel. For me, I could stop preaching right here and feel like I've said everything I need to say in some ways. Because I feel like God is already crystal clear on what He wants it to be. But we'll go on because there's more things to look at. Alright, part two. Things were perfect in the Garden of Eden. You've got a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. They're living in a state of perfection. No fighting, no conflict. They're communicating correctly everything we'd like to have in our marriage. They're doing it all correctly. And then, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Um, do we have that verse? Yeah, there it is. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So you've got God who says, you can eat from any tree in the garden but one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that one or you will die. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve do. And so they and the serpent that tempted them all get cursed. They all get cursed. And so our history, human history, is one long list of this is what the curse has done. This is what the fall has done. This is what we did to ourselves. We mess things up. We mess relationships up. Your marriage isn't perfect because you're both sinners. Relationships aren't perfect because we're full of sin. And so we say the reason why homosexual relationships are an option is because sin exists in the world, because we're infected with it, each and every one of us. We are not what we want to be. We have this in us. Go to Romans. We'll pull the Romans passage up. Not you, but uh, talk, talking to Jim here, right? We're, we're, we're communicating well. Romans 8, 20. Um, we could look at the curse God gave Adam and God gave Eve and God gave the serpent. I think Romans 8 is a pretty sobering summary of what we're looking at. When they sinned, this is what happened. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know the whole creation, that would be men, women, all, all people, all kids, all animals, all plants, everything has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Notice that, uh, it, I don't think Paul has, has a sense of humor there, but pains of childbirth is a, is a re- reference to the curse, right? Women will have painful childbirth. But, but actually, Paul says, all of creation is in pain. Not just women birthing children, but everything is in pain. Everything is not the way it should be. Why is it that you can birth a baby, one of the most beautiful things in the entire universe, and it's got to be so stinking painful? Why is that? The curse. It's the fall. It's because we chose sin. The pains of childbirth, all of creation is in this together. 
Not only so, uh, so I love verse 23 because you, you could say as Christians, are we exempt from this? You know, are we, when you come to Christ, is it just health and wealth and things are all good now? As some pastors teach and some churches teach. All is well when you come to Christ. No, actually verse 23 says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting. You've been saved, what? Some of you 20, 30, 40, 50 years? You're still waiting for your redemption of your body. This body is still not redeemed. It's still not the way it should be. It means that there's not going to become a there's not going to come a time in this life when you enter some sort of sinless perfect state. It's with this thing is with you forever. I wish that men didn't struggle with lust. I wish that wasn't an issue. I know women do too, by the way. I'm not trying to stereotype, but but I, I wish I didn't have that built into me. I wish I wasn't born that way. And yet, that's a battle that you've got to fight. You've got to fight it. Because your body is groaning, waiting for the day when you get a resurrected body that won't want to sin. We're waiting. Christians are waiting. Non-Christians are waiting, even though they're waiting for something much more terrible without Christ in the next life. All of the world is waiting to be free from the curse of sin. And so we say, you may be born with it, you may be born with this desire that the Bible is saying no to, but that's because the whole creation's that way. We're all that way. Some of you have done things you never want to think about again, but at the moment you wanted to do it. Why? And some of you have been a Christian for 60 years and you still want to go back to that sin. Why? Because this is the infection in our, in our bodies our body is a traitor. And just because it tells us to do something doesn't mean God wants me to do it. All of creation's groaning. All right. Part C. 2C. This is the fall. C is Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of the judgment of God on homosexual behavior and other sins. The verse we're referencing is in Genesis 19, 4 through 5. This is probably the first clear reference to homosexual behavior. Um, some have thought maybe what happened between Noah and one of his sons was that way, perhaps. There's not clarity on that, so I'm overlooking it. Uh, pull up Genesis 19, if we could. And they called to Lot. So Lot is living in, in, in those cities, I believe Sodom, right? And he, is, and he has two, two angelic guests visiting. And the whole town comes out and knocks. And they say, where are the men who came to you? Bring them out so we may have relations with them. So the men are gathered around sending, send out those people that are with you. Send out those men that are with you. Um, now, on the one hand, you say there's a clear condemnation here of homosexual behavior, but there's also a challenge. And the challenge is, uh, you're going to hear is, uh, in, in your notes, you can't use Sodom and Gomorrah to condemn homosexuality because that passage only speaks about rape. 
In fact, Ezekiel 16.49 reveals the true reason these cities were destroyed. Now, I bring up Ezekiel 16. This is what it says. This is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They didn't help the poor and the needy. Now you read that, and what I've seen in the literature that I've read is people pointing fingers at Christians saying, you are anti-gay, you're bigoted, you are, this is what you are, because clearly, if you looked at Ezekiel, this is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is it. So why are you Christians putting it on us when that's the sin? And so it makes us feel like maybe we are hateful and that we are wrong. My response is this. Actually, it's not my response. It's the Bible's response. Uh, Jude uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of God's judgment on all of the sexually immoral. That's Jude 1.7. I will pull that up. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality as a broad word, perversion. They, you know, so all sorts of sexual sins. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah were doing. All sorts of things. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So I'm saying the strategy of those that oppose this passage, they're saying you can't use this passage because it's rape. And that doesn't apply to what we're talking about today. Everyone knows that's wrong. But the Bible itself says these people were engaging in all kinds of sexual immorality and perversion. All kinds. Fill in the blanks. They were doing it. And, and the wrath of God that rained down from heaven is how he feels about that. So you can't say, Ezekiel says it means this, and you can't apply that passage. You can't say that. Yes, I'm sure they were doing many other things wrong too. I, I know that that's not their only sin. I get it. Ezekiel makes it clear there were a lot of things going on in that city, those cities. But this is one of the things we understand from this passage, according to Jude 1.7. It's a warning. All right. Part. Do I have Augustine? Um, Augustine, can we pull him up? This is not in your notes, but um, the church fathers, church history has been united on this issue. Our, our desire to change what the Bible says about this has been recent. Uh, Augustine in AD 400 says, those shameful acts against nature, such as were committed in Sodom, ought everywhere and always to be detested and punished. If all nations were to do such things, they would be held guilty of, of the same crime by the law of God, which has not made men so that they should use one another in this way. So Augustine and early church fathers were united against this issue. Um, that word punished, I want to come back to punished. Because there is a good question about punishment here. And the Bible does address that too. But in a, in a different way than maybe Augustine has in mind. Okay? Part three. We're on part three. How are we doing? All right. Five after ten. We'll see how this goes. Part three. Um, the law. The law. So, um, after Genesis, after creation, after the fall... You've got God choosing a people. He calls Abraham to follow him, right? Calls the nation of Israel together. Uh, that's Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And he gives them laws. He gives them Torah. 
These are the standards by which Israel must live. And so we read, we'll uh, put up the laws in Leviticus first, then we'll do the um, part D. Can you put the Leviticus 18 and 20 up first? Uh, Leviticus 18 says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus 20, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. So in one sense, we say part D here, that the law describes and condemns homosexual behavior. It describes it and condemns it. You don't lie with a man as you lie with a woman. There's a comparison here. Let's compare the two. Here's how you do it here. Here's how you do it here. Don't do this one. Don't do this one. The comparison's clear. It's descriptive. The challenge here, though, comes like this. Christians pick and choose what Old Testament commands they obey all the time. You, piss, you Christians, you love picking and choosing. We'll obey this one and not that one. Show me your tattoos, Christians, because i got a verse for you on that. You, know, you pick and choose, and that's not right. Further, are you really saying homosexuals deserve to die? And finally, all of these commands actually refer to cult prostitution. God is just saying, I don't want you to go to a pagan temple and find a prostitute and engage in relations with that person. Don't do that. That's all it's referring to. And at the beginning of one of those chapters, I think the beginning of Leviticus 20, it actually talks about Molech. Don't sacrifice your kids to Molech. What about that? So idolatry is the issue here. If idolatry is not involved, it's okay. Boy, I preached a whole message on this in Galatians. I'd almost say, go back and listen to that. But I think we need to answer this question because I remember I was reading, I think I've told you this before, but I, I, I subscribed to a Christian youth ministry magazine. I got it like quarterly. I was reading it and I saw a, 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 a letter from a pastor, a youth pastor who was in his, I'd say, 40s, late 40s, seasoned youth pastor who is also a staff writer for this youth ministry magazine. And he wrote this letter and said, and it was on uh, ministering to homosexual students, and he said, you know, why are you even preaching that this is a sin? Because you look at the law, are you going to worry about how your cloth is combined in your clothes? Are you going to worry about how you treat mildew in your house the way they did? Are you going to worry about sacrificing animals? And he goes on to make jokes and mock the law. Like, here's how they did things. Why would you hold Leviticus 18 and 20 to be the law when you don't hold the other things to be the law? Here's why. It's a good question. Um, go to Matthew 7, or 5, excuse me. We'll put up on the overhead here. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the single stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, to get rid of the law. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. Fulfill means he came to show us the real way to obey the law. He came to show us, here's how you do the law now. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, uh, don't commit adultery. 
I tell you, don't look at a woman lustfully. You know, that's what he did. He showed us, this is how you do the law now. And in some ways, he makes it even harder to do. Because it's not just about adultery anymore. It's not just about murder anymore. You can't even hate people now. Thanks a lot, you know. I can't even nurture hateful feelings in my heart because Jesus calls it murder. Um, Jesus coming has changed our relationship to the law. We're not under the law. That's true. We're now united to Christ. Jesus doesn't abolish the law, but he fulfills it by showing us the proper way to obey it. Now, um, would you pull up the Romans passage, Romans uh, 7.4, I believe we're on. So, my brothers, you died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that just as... Sorry. Sorry. My brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So the idea is, you used to be married to the law. That's the analogy Paul's going for. It was like, you have, you have a Jewish person and you're married to the law, but now you're dead to the law, so now you can remarry, and you're remarrying Jesus. He's the groom, you're the bride. You're underneath his authority now. Would Jesus tell you to disobey the law? No, he wouldn't. But he does want you to know some of those laws have been changed now. You don't have to sacrifice to animals because Jesus is the final sacrifice. No more killing animals. It's done. You're free of that. No more of the ceremonial laws that all point to Christ. But when you're talking about moral laws that are repeated in the New Testament, those things stand. And Jesus isn't going to ask you to disobey the law. He didn't come to abolish it. In fact, he said, if people teach other people to ignore it, they'll be called the least in the kingdom. Those are Jesus' words. So if you feel like, if you feel like you get to ignore the law and get your tattoo because, it's, because you know, who follows the law anyway? You've got to read that verse again. If the tattoos are referring to pagan worship practices, like I suspect they might be, then maybe you're right. Because that same verse says, don't put markings on yourself for the dead. Kind of sounds like a pagan worship ritual. So my thinking is tattoos are probably, the kind we're talking about today are different than what they're talking about back then. But... I'm not 100% on that. And you dare not gloss over it. Will God ask you to break his own holy law? Um, lastly, uh, Romans uh, 1.32. Can we bring up that verse? Wow, I am blowing the time away here. Craziness. Okay. Um, Romans 1.32 has a description of sexual sins. It has a description of other sins and it says, although they that know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. That's referring to the homosexual sins in Romans 1 and other sins in Romans 1. There's lots of other ones too. Slandering, disobeying parents, all sorts of things. They not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. Here's the statement then. If the law says you deserve to die for doing this, you deserve to die for doing that. God said it. Why don't we kill people then? Well, that's easy. That's easy. Because when Jesus came, he changed the social consequences of sin. Next week we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 5. And Paul's going to talk about a man who commits an extremely gross sexual sin. Does Paul say kill the guy? 
No, he says, cast him out of the church. Because Jesus' grace has changed what we do with sinners. You want to stone that woman? But he was without sin cast the first stone. It's changed. We're not enforcing the death penalty here. Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. There's some changes. But the act of the sin does not change. I think I've answered that. Uh, let me see. There's one part I might not have. Let's see. Um, oh, yeah. If you read the context of Leviticus 18 and 20, those commands are right in the middle of other commands against sexual sin. You've got incest, bestiality. It's all in there. It's not connected to pagan worship. It's right in the middle of every other command for sexual sin. It's not different. It's the same. So there's the end. You can look at that yourself later, but we'll keep moving. Part four. Halfway done, and I've got five minutes. We'll see. And five minutes is considering I'm probably going to go to 1030. Okay, so... Part four. Uh, let's see. Redemption. Okay, at least we're in the New Testament now, right? We're getting there. Redemption. All right. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul identifies homosexuals with other sinners who will not inherit the kingdom of God, but now because of Christ's death, they can be justified. All sinners can be forgiven. Pull up First Corinthians 6. We'll look at it again next week too, but for now, let's look at it this way. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's something for everybody in there. We're, we've got the, we're full of these people in the church. I'm one of them. But that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who you were, but now you're washed. Now you're declared righteous, not guilty. That's who you are now. When Jesus came, He died on the cross for sins, including homosexuals, including swindlers, including the greedy. All lump them together. They can now be forgiven. There's a challenge here. The Greek word translated homosexual offender is arsenokoites. It's unclear what that word means. It most likely refers to temple prostitution or pederasty. I'll let you look up that last word on your own. I will not describe it here for you. Um, arsenokoites um, seems like the first use we have of this word, that word for homosexual offender. Paul did it. He's the first one to use it as far as we know. It's only used 77 times out, you know, in, in literature back then. It doesn't come up a lot. The answer here is, the word literally means man and bed. Arsenal, man, coites, bed. The word has direct connections to the Leviticus 18 and 20 passage that we just read. Okay, so stay with me here. In Hebrew, Leviticus 18 and 20 were, were written in Hebrew, Right? But they translated that into Greek. There's a Greek version of the New Testament called the Septuagint. Are you with me so far? Written in Hebrew, translated into Greek. Paul references that, that word arsenal and koites. Those words are in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. Those roots to that word are right there in those verses. So where did Paul get his word? Did he make it up himself? No, it looks like he's using the word calling on Leviticus 18 and 20. 
That's where the word comes from as far as we know. It is also in close proximity to the word malakos, which refers to a soft man, someone who's trying to attract another man. That I, so some people have said this has an active and a passive form of homosexuality in the same verse. The soft one and then the, the active, more active one in the same verse. Those, those words are right close to each other. That would be my response to that. I'd, I'd also say, I think I have a, do I have one of the church, I don't have a church father on that verse, but uh, church fathers did write on that verse. I don't have a quote for you though this morning. I should keep moving. Part five, transformation. Transformation. Man. Romans 1, Paul vividly describes male and female homosexual acts as unnatural, shameful lust, inflamed with lust, indecent, and a perversion. Here's why I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Please go to Romans chapter 1. This has got to be one of the most powerful, most uh, relevant passages in the, in the whole Bible on this topic. Romans 1. We'll start in 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. Jump down to verse um, 20, 21. For although they knew God, they neither, neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even the woman exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Many people say clearly, Paul is using descriptive language to say what people are doing back then. You're inflamed with lust for someone. You're committing a perversion. You're exchanging a natural relation. This seems pretty clear, but there is two challenges. There are major challenges of this passage. One, you've kind of heard it before, but I'll say it again. One says, hey, look, um, if you look at verse uh, 18 through 20, it looks like people are suppressing the truth. It looks like in verse 21 and 22, they're worshiping idols. So isn't homosexuality in Romans 1 talking about idolatry? Go to the temple. Find a prostitute. That's where it's happening. Paul says that can't happen anymore. So the challenge is this is only talking about homosexual prostitution. That's it. My answer, I'm going to stay away from my notes. I know I'm going long here. Uh, the answer is, look at the parallels that are happening in Romans chapter 1. I want you to see them quickly. Um, in verse 21 it says, People knew God, but they rejected Him. So God gave them over, in verse 24, to sinful desires of their hearts. In verse 28 it says, 
They didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So they didn't want to worship God. So what did, what did God do? He gave them over to a depraved mind. And then there's a whole list of sins after that. In verse 21, they knew God. They didn't glorify Him. And so they exchanged the glory of God for images. So you've got this, this parallel when you read Romans 1. You've got, we don't want God. You've got God saying, fine, I'm going to give you over to that then. And then you've got depravity, perversion, sinful actions. Three times in this passage you've got, we don't want you, God. God says, fine, have it your way. I'm giving you over to this. And then you've got people committing all sorts of sins. Let me look at the last one again in verse 28. They didn't think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. We don't want you, God. God says, I'm giving you over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent. Again, there's something for everybody here. Arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Are all of those sins connected to idolatry also? No. They're not. These sins stand on their own. You can be an idol worshiper and be arrogant. You can be uh, insolent. and You can be whatever. You don't have to be an idol worshiper to do any of this. You don't have to be an idol worshiper to be inflamed with lust for someone else of the same sex. Or even the opposite sex, it's not your spouse. You don't have to be an idolater to do Romans 1. You just have to be sinful. And so one of the second challenges here that Paul is only condemning unnatural acts. If it's unnatural, it's condemned. Um, where are we at here? Women, verse 26, women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. So, so the challenge goes like this. If you're a heterosexual and you exchange what's in your nature for something that's what not, what's not in your nature, that's a sin. But if you were born that way, then it's in your nature to do it. And so Paul is not condemning it here. I don't know, though, how do you get around the verse that says they're inflamed with lust for each other? That sounds like sexual orientation to me. It sounds like I have desire for someone of the same sex, and I'm going to carry that out. That's the language of Romans 1. You want to know the context of Romans 1? It's not idolatry. I mean, idolatry is in there. The context is creation. Isn't that what he talks about? They knew God. They didn't want to give thanks to Him. They'd seen in verse 19 what God had made. They saw creation. If you want to understand Romans 1, you've got to go back to Genesis 1-3 again and say again, what is the natural way God created people? Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, that's the context for Romans 1. Idolatry is in there, but idolatry doesn't define what it's about. Boy, I'm going to skip part G, I think. No, G I'm going to do, H I'm not going to do. Part G, and then we'll bring it to a close. Romans 6. Take a look at that. We're talking transformation here. Romans 6, 19. Do we have the verses on the screen, actually? That would be even faster. 
we can pull them up that way if they're there. 6.19 is not there? Okay, go to Romans 6.19. In Romans 6.19, you have the same word for impurity that's in Romans chapter 1. So Romans chapter 6 is the same as Romans chapter 1. They're using the word impurity, sexual impurity. Look at 19 through 21. I put this in human terms just because you were weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body to slavery, to impurity. That's from Romans 1, sexual impurity, and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap from at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, and, benef- and, and the benefit you reap leads to holiness. The result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The homosexual issue is a gospel issue. Right here, Romans 6.23. This is one of our great gospel verses. The wages of sin is death. So the word impurity then in verse 19 is the same word for impurity in Romans 1 when it describes people being inflamed with lust for each other. So Paul says, you've got to put that away now. You've got to be transformed now. It does no good to say, I'm a Christian now, and, and, I, and I kind of wonder what the Bible says about this issue, so I'm just going to keep doing these actions. No, Paul says, if, if you're a gospel Christian, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. If that's your loyalty to Jesus Christ, then you have to put away impurity. Romans 6.19, you've got to put that away. You can't be a slave to that anymore. So hear me. If you're redeemed, you need to be transformed. And that's why as a church we say, let's be transformed by Christ. Let's reject homosexual behavior. Let's remain celibate. It, let me say this to you. And we will, we'll do uh, questions at, at cross-training. If this is you and you deal with this struggle and it's in you, you were born with this, Jesus wants to transform you. Paul says in another place in Romans, who shall save me from this body of death? This body of death. When he uses the word body, it's the Greek word soma. He literally means body. You know, this thing is a traitor. This body of death. Who will save me from it? Because I do the things I don't want to do. Then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. This is our message, that the Bible condemns homosexual behavior, but it offers forgiveness and transformation. I'm not saying the transformation changes you from homosexual to heterosexual. I'm not saying you get a new set of desires for the opposite sex now, because often that is not, that's not what happens at all. From what I've read, we say, be transformed, be holy, honor Christ, be celibate, let us help you, come talk to us. The first person to judge you will be the first person I'm on the phone with to say, stop. Because we are not a judging church, but we're a discerning church. And we're saying, part of the gospel is transformation. If I say your sin is fine, keep going, then I'm disobeying what the gospel says. The gospel demands that I believe in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit washes me clean of my sin, and that now I live for Him. I take up my cross and follow. I deny myself. And for the homosexuals among us that are here today, 
Jesus is asking you to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. Let the church help you. We want to love you well. I'll spend a whole message talking about that next week and how we can love well. But for now, let me say, God offers you forgiveness, hope, and one day you get a new resurrected body that won't be infected the way our bodies are with sin. One day, I won't have to worry about my own lust. And one day, you won't have to worry about your own hate. One day, you won't have to carry those things people have said to you, the hate that you feel. You know, One day, all of that's gone. And we all look forward to that day. We all look forward to that day. One day we will be glorified in Ephesians 5.31-33 will be true. Christ is the groom. We are the bride. One day we will have new resurrected bodies. One day we're going to be with Jesus. And guess what? There will be no marriage. There will be no marriage. That's the teaching of Scripture. In the resurrection there will be no marriage. We'll be with Jesus and that will be enough. Worship team, I'm going to invite you up. We're going to take communion to close the service out. If you feel like staying for the second service, I mean Sunday school, um, we'll meet in here at about 10, eh, 10.50. Let's do 10.50. Thank you for allowing me to keep you late. Um, important topic, important topic. Ushers, would you come up? that are going to serve the communion. Here's how we're going to end the service today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter what your sexual orientation is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are forgiven, you are saved. If you're following Jesus, then come forward and take communion. We're going to have ushers on this side and this side. We're going to have bread We'll invite you to come up and rip off a piece of bread that will remind you that Jesus' body was broken for your forgiveness. You're going to dip it in the cup that reminds us of the blood that washes away sin. Then you'll take communion and you will be dismissed this morning. Right after you take communion. Okay? If you're not taking communion, then you'll be dismissed now. You can leave now. That'd be fine. We're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And as you heard from the story, that song is about your commitment to Christ. That's what it's about. It's used for altar calls. It's about your commitment. So we're going to sing. When you're ready, come forward, take communion. If you need gluten-free, we have gluten-free right here in the middle. Uh, and, and Mr. Dave Gerlach will serve you. You can put your hand up and he'll bring that to you. Or you could come forward. I think either way is fine. You want to serve them, Dave? Take it to them? You'll serve them. All right, if you're gluten-free. Let me pray. We'll take communion. We'll be dismissed to Sunday school. Let's pray. Father, I hope that no one in this room feels that they are judged by this body. I pray that everyone in this room actually believes that your laws are for our good. They're good for us. They're good for society. They're good for our country. Father, forgive the church where we've fallen short in standing for the truth. Forgive the church for where we've been condemning and mean and hateful and spiteful. Forgive us for these things. May you fill us up with so much grace and truth that people just can't believe that we're able to talk about this issue 
with such love in our face. For those that are going to go into hard conversations in the future, I pray for them that they be able to speak words of truth in life and do it in a loving way. For the communion we're about to have today, may you remind us of the gospel that changes everything, the forgiveness we have in you, given to sinners of all kinds. We're all washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And that makes us so thankful that you can draw all different kinds of sinners together. And sometimes their sin shows. And sometimes we just got to forgive each other for what we've done. But thank you for bringing us together. Would you unite this church? Would you keep us in the palm of your hand, doing and saying and living the way you've called us to? In Jesus' name, amen. So now as you feel ready, please come.